Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. I'm your host, joined this week, I think by the entirety of the art market team. Uh, sitting to my right is Anna Louise Sussman. Hi, Isaac. We're also joined by senior reporter Nate Freeman. Hello, how are you? And executive editor Alexander Forbes. Hey, Isaac. Okay, so we are here, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, to talk about the art market. We are now three months into 2018. There's been a good uh, amount of market activity, a lot of benchmarks we can look at. So I think let's begin maybe with the first big public test of the art market that came so far in 2018, which are the London auctions. Uh, Nate, you're super familiar with this. Can you can you maybe just for, for our listeners who perhaps missed the, the flurry of bidding, uh, what, what, what were the main takeaways? The sales in London were... By all accounts, an enormous success. Both the Impressionist and Modern Week, and then uh, following that, uh, the Postwar and Contemporary Sales Week uh, were huge. And the London sales are really an important bellwether for how the market is doing at the start of the year and how it's going to continue. During the Impressionist and Modern Week, you had an incredible run of purchases by one art advisory firm. Uh, They picked up Dozens of work by Pablo Picasso over the course of multiple sales, spending over $100 million on all of the works. And the week after that was the biggest post-war and contemporary week in uh, London sales history. You had uh, Phillips emerging as a new player. They had their biggest sale ever, which included a record-breaking Mark Bradford work that launched Bradford into the echelon of the most expensive living artists. So there's a lot of highlights in London, and it definitely set the tone for a very strong market. Is that normally the case? I mean, how did this year's London auctions kind of differ from previous years, if at all? There seemed to be a little bit more firepower this time around. I uh, think there was just a lot of amazing work that was brought to market that was consigned. You saw that really at Phillips. There was no way that Phillips could have gotten this Picasso work that sold for upwards of $40 million uh, at Phillips. There's no way that Phillips would have gotten that five years ago. And the fact that they chose to sell that in London is really telling. They could have sold it here if they wanted to in May, but they sold it in London. You mentioned the banner week at Phillips, and I think it's interesting, you know, the Sotheby's and Christie's have been, and, you know, to some extent are really this duopoly at the top of the auction market. Phillips has been a fairly distant third But I think a lot of commentators were saying after that week that this represented a, you know, a new high point for Ed Dolman since he took over the house in July 2014, uh, really building on uh, launching the new HQ in London. I I wonder to what extent that had to do with uh, them really wanting to have a strong showing there as it's their main home. But you know, we'll, we'll see what comes from it, but it'll be interesting to see if, if they continue those forward strides and really upset the, the two-horse race at the front. Just to be clear, Christie's does $6 billion in sales every year. Phillips does $700 billion. So they are in a very distant third. But, you know, it's exciting to see this kind of a sale happen. To provide a counterpoint to that, um, I was speaking with someone who had been in the London sales bidding on behalf of clients or um, had been involved with works uh, otherwise that were consigned. And she was saying, apart from some of the very top-level paintings and sculptures that saw um, a number of interested bidders for a lot of the works at auction, it was one or at most two bidders, and it seemed like they were just kind of cycling through a lot of the lots. And, um, you know, a lot of them also had 
third-party guarantees. And her overall takeaway was that the desperate search for guarantees, or she's saying the houses would call around before the sale and try to get someone to guarantee it, meant that despite being uh, sort of in the upward swing of the cycle, we're feeling somewhat risk-averse. It's an interesting point because it reminds me of what a lot of people were saying um, back when I was covering some of the auctions last year around the time that Da Vinci was sold. You know, the, the, the words managed sale were used a lot, and that was like... Maybe, yeah, there's, there, those sparks aren't flying, but, you know, everyone knows that things are going to go relatively well. And it's like, OK, let's just march through the sale kind of periodically. Alex, I'm kind of curious to what extent you think that maybe is the new normal. Like, will, will we ever, you know, is, is this sort of what the auction market is going to kind of look like? It's like, oh, yeah, we know basically who's going to buy this or we're sure this will sell. Um, and, and there's less sparks flying or, or there's spark like even the auction houses are are picking the lots where they're like, the sparks will fly on this lot and only this lot. Yeah, I think there's this romantic idea that, you know, an auction is this place where people show up and nobody knows what's going to happen. And, you know, things could go for quadruple their estimate or not sell at all. And in large part, and probably to the health of those businesses, that is, you know, receding, at least particularly from the evening sales. You hear people... Uh, like Tad Smith, the CEO of Sotheby's, and Amy Capalazzo, who uh, runs their fine art division, you know, talking a lot about this kind of deal-making. Frankly, the, the market has reached a different level, and these houses, uh, particularly publicly traded one like Sotheby's, are massive businesses that need to protect their risk. The auction market has progressed to a point where to, to leave anything up to chance would be foolish from a business perspective. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I feel like a lot has been made about the rise of guarantees, lack of bidding depth, et cetera. You know, particularly in the evening sales, is it kind of a, a song and dance, a nice marketing opportunity to show when you might consign your lesser, you know, lesser value work to that house? Uh, sure. And, and are they being careful about how much risk they take on in doing that? Absolutely. But I, that overall will help bring about more stability in the art market, in my opinion. And if we want this to be an industry that can continue to scale at any level, that kind of predictability is what investors will want to see in these businesses. It's interesting to me, though, because to the extent that like things are becoming increasingly managed, it makes the exceptions to that almost more prominent and sort of more head scratching. Like I'm thinking of the uh, bacon painting that Christie's failed to sell in uh, October of last year. Mm -hmm. That was kind of a big one that I think that was just like, how does that happen? Well, that was supposed to be the most expensive painting ever sold in Europe and it failed to sell. It was a huge, huge loss. Uh, And it's just because there wasn't a buyer that was interested. Christie's thinks that they have a picture that, someone will come into the, the King Street sale room and say, I want that. And if it doesn't happen, it doesn't sell. Right after the Da Vinci sold, you had enormous loss by Christie's, this Basquiat painting that failed to sell. They had to you know, take that in and sell it privately if they could. It was a huge loss. Sometimes just the buyers aren't there. Taking a step back from auctions, uh, UBS Art Basel's uh, 2018 art market report was released uh, recently. Nate, you covered that. I mean, what were the sort of big takeaways uh, in your mind? Well, year to year, the art market is up. That hasn't happened since 2014. So after a few years of relative slumps, uh, we have a spurt again. 
And I think that was to be expected. The auctions have you know, been wildly successful over the past year. It seems that every fair has done relatively well. And so while we're not quite at the heights that we were in 2014, we're going back up again. And I think that was the major takeaway. So what we're looking at is an art market that brought in $63.7 billion in 2017. And that's a rise of 12% over the total in 2016. But, you know, it was a 347-page document. There's a lot to dig into in there. And, you know, one thing I really took away from it was the market is really held up by the top, top end. And while, you know, dealers who are uh, working with pictures that are above a million dollars tend to be doing very, very well, that's kind of eating away at just how the lower part of the market operates. And you see that at auction houses, at galleries, and at fairs. And you see that affecting dealer sales. If you look at the breakdown of um, what galleries are selling by value versus by the volume of sales. So for example, 74% of transactions uh, by dealers were under $50,000. So you know that's a large number of sales that are happening in 2017, but that only accounted for 30% of the value of overall sales. A lot of the value was happening at the higher end of the market. So above um, 250,000, um, but from 250,000 to a million. So I don't know what you'd call that kind of middle high end. That was only 5% of sales in 2017, but accounted for 30% of the value. And then when you go, you know, to the very high end over a million dollars, only 2% of the sales that happened were worth more than a million dollars, but that accounted for 18% of uh, the value of all sales that dealers brought in. That shift to the high end of the market is uh, definitely impacting smaller and mid-sized galleries because a lot of the costs are the same for those galleries. Uh, they have to attend fairs. They maybe have to entertain their collectors. They have rents in similar cities. And so they're bearing a lot of the costs of these, uh, of the, of the expenses of keeping their doors open without necessarily making margins, um, you know, the same way that very high end dealers are. Yeah. And I, I mean, one statistic that made me kind of grimace was just this, this sort of real slowdown in the number of galleries that are opening up. Can can you maybe talk us through that and what, what the report showed? So Claire McAndrew, the author of the report, used uh, data from a, a Berlin database called Artfacts that tracks um, artists and exhibitors and institutions. They gathered together a set of 5,000 um, galleries. Uh, one of the criteria they used was that they'd participated in a fair uh, recently. So that does leave out um, brand new galleries and likely some younger ones who um, haven't yet had the chance to participate in a major fair. So just to be clear, she's talking about a, a certain subset of um, dealers that's kind of biased a little bit upwards and probably leaves out a lot of very local level activity. Right. That said, she found that I think it's from a decade ago, you had about five galleries opening for everyone that was closing. Um, in 2017, that ratio was much lower and in fact fell below replacement rate. So it's only 0.9 galleries opening for every one that's closing. And that I think speaks to a few different things. One is a more general trend of uh, slowdown in business dynamism and entrepreneurship um, in a lot of developing countries. But, you know, in the art sector specifically, um, I spoke to uh, Claire and she was saying, um, 
you know, you either have to have uh, access to a lot of capital, um, you know, which can mean typically family money because banks are very reluctant to lend to uh, art businesses or a really uh, amazing network of contacts who can afford to buy art or typically you need both, um, which makes it very challenging for people who don't come from deep inside the art world or don't come from a wealthy background to get their foot in the door. I think two things really stick out and I would be curious to get everybody's input on is, you know, what today is not incentivizing galleries to open, um, whether that's business dynamics or the way that the art world is structured. And then, you know, this other thing that you just mentioned, uh, Anna, about the lack of availability of capital um, and financing for galleries is fascinating too, you know, compared to most industries, at least in the U.S. and, and, you know, in large part around the rest of the world. That is kind of the availability of capital is the driving force of a lot of growth. And so if if that isn't available to people in the art market, one, should it be? and, And how could it be more available? I mean, if you were a bank officer and someone said, I need to pay rent in Mayfair, for like the next three years and I might only sell one thing a year because I'm new to this, it's only going to cost $50,000 at the most. Um, You know, as a responsible bank officer, loan officer, you might be skeptical. Um, You know, and it's not a business model that people uh, in the financial services industry are necessarily like super familiar with. Um, And it is, it it doesn't have regular... uh, cash flow the way other business, you know, if you're a car dealership, you can say, I plan to sell this many cars each month. And um, that's probably something that a, a lender is more familiar with, or even a restaurant franchise. I mean, these all these business models are a little bit more familiar um, versus an art industry where the cash flow is very bumpy. Um, but the costs of running it can, and the overhead can be quite high. Yeah. I mean, part of that cash flow issue is has to do with the sort of handshake deal uh, ethos of the art world. You know, when a collector buys a painting, they can wait six, nine months to pay for it um, because that's just sort of how business is done. The collector has all the the power and control. Um, You know, they can stroll through an art fair and pick out 15 things they want to get and just slowly dole out the cash for them. And I wish I could do that at a, a restaurant. Be like, I'll be back in six <laughs> months to uh, pay for this hamburger, but uh, just eat the, eat the cost for now. <laughs> right. And uh, and while they're waiting, galleries close down because they don't have the money it's to pay It's a little rent. bit sick. They're giving um, some of the wealthiest people in the world no interest loans, essentially, uh, on the things they're selling them. Yeah, not to mention, you know, they're taking 10% right off the top because they're friends with the collector. There's one thing I want to talk about, which Anna, you kind of hinted at, which is this this report, which was compiled by Dr. Claire McAndrew, is, I think, safe to say the best macro look at the art market that is available. Um, to, to what extent, though, do you think it's, you know, missing certain trends or, or you know, what, what are kind of its weaknesses that that are fair to kind of be aware of when discussing something like this? Um, I think... Claire would also be the first person to say that she just she's not dealing with a complete data set by any means. Um, it's her best effort at gathering data and what is uh, everyone would accept is a very um, still you know a not completely transparent market. Um, so she surveyed, for example, for the dealer part, uh, sixty five hundred dealers and got a response rate of fourteen percent. So it's around nine hundred, which is um, in fact. A 
couple hundred, I believe, lower, you know, fewer uh, responses than she got last year. So she did say that she was working with a smaller sample set. Um, she told me that if she doesn't believe her sample set is large enough, she won't print the data. So for example, she'll only print something if she feels like the data is robust enough to merit uh, putting that information in. Um, but it is uh, incomplete. Um, you know, things like the chapter on online sales relies on self-reporting. So it's whatever the person filling out the survey counts as an online sale. Um, and she tries in the language to specify, you know, if it didn't involve a phone call or an in-person meeting, um, then it counts as on, you know, if a query came through a website or an email. But, you know, then I said, what if you call to get the credit card information. You know, I mean, it's all a little bit vague and relies on self-reporting. And that's one of the, um, you know, pitfalls of doing any kind of survey. It is interesting when you get into those little hair-splitting moments within the report that said it's a directional look at where the art market is headed more than anything else and lacking every dealer and every collector being completely transparent about everything they did, which wouldn't happen in any industry, never mind the art market, uh, you know, it's at least useful to have some directional look at where the market is headed, what are the trends, who is, who's kind of coming out on top, and what do we need to be aware of in order to continue to, to develop sustainably. And one of the things that she's gained in, in my conversations with her in the past, she said that this compared to the TAFAF report, which she used to put together and has, uh, after one year under another researcher, has actually since been wound down, because of Art Basel's strength in the, you know, among the top 500 galleries or so in the world and their network, um, she's actually been able to get much better information on the primary market side, which is interesting because that's, that's the area that people just don't really have much of an idea otherwise what's happening in. And to that point, um, she said, uh, she, she didn't have the exact number, but she said the majority of respondents were in the contemporary sector. So those are some of the major galleries that are participating at Art Basel. Um, I think 60% was the rough estimate, but she didn't have the exact number, so I don't want to hold her to that. But a lot of the respondents came from contemporary. Yeah, I mean, another another big art world trend that kind of intersects with Art Basel in Hong Kong, which is going on right now, uh, is the expansion of galleries uh, into Asia and these these mega galleries opening up outposts there. I mean, Alex, I think you're most clued into what's What's going on in China? Can you maybe tell us a little bit about how the art market is shaping up there right now? One of the interesting things that came out of this year's report is that China actually nosed out the UK as the second largest art market in the world by a percentage point. So it's not like, uh, you know, a a giant win. Um, But certainly, you know, with Art Basel in Hong Kong happening this week, uh, it's been a strong growth area for the art market for the past half decade to decade. Um, You now have galleries opening there uh, with a much more significant presence than they have in the past. These galleries that have in the past been like, you know, relatively small storefronts to closet sized locations are now having massive, you know, Chelsea Mayfair level uh, spaces uh, in Hong Kong and, and really solidifying that place's presence as, as the art market hub in Asia. That's in large part driven by the fact that wealth, uh, growth of wealth in, in Asia has been astounding over recent years. You know, in China alone, 
China now has 26% of the world's billionaires, and that's in 2017. And in 2010, it was only 6%. So that gives you an idea of just how quick wealth creation is in that region. Now, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see in Hong Kong as the sales roll in, uh, to what extent those billionaires are able to get their money outside of the capital controls uh, that have been ever tighter. That was a big topic last year. Now, the really interesting thing to watch uh, and, and something I think that the report points to is not only these current newly minted billionaires, uh, but the next generation that's going to come after those. Uh, so you know, I think Claire mentions that the market will continue to expand in Asia in lockstep uh, with wealth creation and probably some bit on from there. And when you look at this millennial and Gen Z audience that will be the recipients of that wealth, uh, they're coming into their key buying years with a lot more uh, access to art than was ever the case in that country in the past. All right, it's time for white wine. Alex, why don't you uh, tell us what you'll be up to? I'm going to stay on the China and Asia focus, uh, but be a little self-serving this week. And rather than plug an exhibition, plug the fact that Artsy just launched a WeChat account last week. So if you are in China or uh, read Chinese, go to WeChat and search for Artsy Official and uh, follow the account. And Nate, what about you? Well, since we're here in Hong Kong for the fair, I think I'm going to go down to H. Queens and check out the Wolfgang Tillman show at David's Werner. It's, a, it's supposed to be a gorgeous, gorgeous show with a lot of new work that I'm really excited to check out. Anna, what about you? Um, I'm looking forward when I'm back to seeing the Leon Golub show at the Met Breuer. And uh, I am also uh, going to deviate from the norm a little bit, which I'm allowed to do because I'm the host, and plug an article that I read recently, which was excellent. Um, it was in the Washington Post. It came out in the middle of March. It was about uh, workers, security guards at the National Gallery of Art in Washington talking about uh, what they say is a hostile work environment. I thought it was a great piece uh, in the post that really shined a light on an aspect of the art world that doesn't get a ton of attention. Um, so if you haven't read that already, I, I recommend checking it out. Well, thank you, Anna, Nate, and Alex for joining me here this week. Uh, please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. If you got feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Shoot us an email, podcast at artsy.net. Our producers this week were Louis Sansano and associate editor Abigail Kane. The theme music is by Broke for Free. See you next time.